All right, well, good morning. Welcome to our next week of being scattered together. Uh, thank you for just continued patience uh, in these crazy times, uh, your faithfulness in gathering with us in this way. Um, it means a lot, and so I pray this continues to be a blessing and an encouragement to you through the week. Uh, as you can see, we got the place all uh, decked out for uh, Christmas this last week, beginning the first Sunday uh, of Advent celebrations for us. Um, it, it feels strange doing it because we didn't know, is anyone even going to get to come in and see this? And yet, we want to put it together in faithfulness and just trust that God's either going to bring us in here uh, to celebrate together, or, do you know what, at least as a staff, we're going to get to... Uh, just have some Christmas joy as we uh, come in each day to work. Um, either way, um, the place looks just like you remember, and uh, we miss having you here. Uh, we're going to come to a time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you there, if you would turn now to Matthew's Gospel, beginning our new series today, Kingdom Come, and turn to Matthew's Gospel Chapter 1, verse 1, and we will dig into this together. Matthew writes this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, now hold on. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. <sighs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into this very long list of names. Spirit of God, we uh, thank you for your word. We believe all of it is divinely inspired and useful and profitable, and we pray that uh, we would learn what it is that you want to uh, reveal to us today uh, as we 
uh, begin this study through Matthew, and I just pray, Father, that, that you would just uh, open eyes and hear ears and, and hearts and minds to, to see what you want us to show us and, and accomplish what it is you want to accomplish in us today. You say that when you send out this word, it does accomplish what you send it out for. So God, I ask, please accomplish that in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Now, if you were to compare something like a documentary, just a single documentary about the Allied forces victory in World War II with an HBO series like Band of Brothers, what you'd probably very quickly see is that while they're both telling the exact same story, the first gives you more of a, of a flyover macro view of the victory, while the second takes you right down into the day-to-day, on-the-ground experience of the soldiers who helped to bring that victory about. Same story, but telling it in different ways. Well, I mention all that because for this simple reason, as we leave our study through the book of Ephesians and now embark on this new teaching series today through the gospel of Matthew, Kingdom Come, we're actually going to continue to look at the very same story, the very same eternal plan of God to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus that we began learning about all the way back at the beginning of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.10. Same story. The only difference is that where Ephesians gave us the macro flyover version of that plan, Matthew now takes us down into the day-to-day, on-the-ground experience of Jesus as he's bringing that plan about. This gospel, written by a former tax collector, one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples, is perhaps not as well known as many, uh, uh, some of the other gospel accounts today, and yet that in no way diminishes its value or, or importance. In fact, in the second and third century, Matthew's gospel was actually seen as primary, and, and it was placed first in the New Testament canon, both because of its popularity, as well as because of the way Matthew does more than any other gospel writer to help uh, tie together or bridge together the Old and the New Testaments for us. But all that being said, even if you have just even a little bit of experience reading the Bible, there's still going to be all kinds of sections in Matthew's gospel that, that you'll, you'll look at, will come to, and they'll just be familiar to you. Uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, to the Great Commission, to many of Jesus' well-known parables, there's going to be all kinds of things that will still be very familiar. The, the point, as well as the main purpose for studying Matthew's account of the life and work of Jesus together, is that the story, each part of this gospel of fulfillment is telling all together, is the story of God's promised king bringing God's promised kingdom to earth. A kingdom as subjects of that king and citizens of his kingdom that we are now tasked with continuing to help bring as the church. And so along with just getting to know our Savior and King that much better, which would be great in itself, my hope for this series is that as we learn exactly what kind of kingdom it was that Jesus actually came to bring, and I say that because as we'll see, that the King and the kingdom were quite a bit different than what many people were expecting in Jesus' day, and actually what many of us still believe the kind of kingdom Jesus was going to bring today. As we learn about what kind of kingdom Jesus was actually trying to bring, 
will become all the more effective at carrying out the ongoing kingdom work that Jesus commissions every one of his followers to at the end of Matthew's gospel. We'll, we'll be very clear about what kind of kingdom Jesus intends, intended to bring and intends for us to continue to bring. And as Matthew begins his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we see that like with all the gospel writers, Matthew begins in a way that is unique to him. Uh, both Mark and John, while being unique in their own ways, they both start their account of the life of Jesus somewhere around his baptism. Uh, Luke, like Matthew, begins after a brief preamble, also with the birth of Jesus in his gospel account. But it's only Matthew, after also beginning with the birth of Jesus, but who begins before that by giving us Jesus' beginnings. It's only Matthew who does this. And I say that not only because Matthew lists a whole bunch of names in Jesus' royal lineage, but because if you look at the way Matthew begins his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, in the Greek, literally, that reads Biblos Genesis. That is, the book of the Genesis, the book of the origin, the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. And as you would have heard when I read our passage, Matthew, he lists a whole lot of Jesus' earthly beginnings, 42 to be exact. But if you look again back at verse 1 of chapter 1, you'll see that Matthew there wants to highlight three of Jesus' beginnings in particular. He wants to highlight Jesus as the son of Abraham, Jesus as the son of David, and then by referring to him as the Christ, Jesus as the son of God. Now, Matthew proceeds to take the next 15 verses to, to back up those claims about Jesus in a way that, although strange and probably to many of us sounds pretty boring today to, to see and to, to read, people in Jesus' day would have really respected this, this way of listing out someone's genealogy and it would have been very compelling evidence to them. But here's the thing, the reason we can know that this is still important for us today to, to read and to understand, not just skim or even just skip over altogether, is because, look, it's not until Matthew has finished everything he wants to say here in these first 17 verses that he then writes in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Which means, what Matthew believes anyway, is that we need to know all this stuff first. We, we need to know who it is that's being born first, before we learn how it is that this birth came about. And the reason is because when you understand Jesus' beginnings, you understand that the birth of Jesus, which we celebrate every Christmas, is the arrival of God's promised king. Now, no. Uh, Jesus' arrival isn't going to look like the arrival of a king at all. In fact, uh, it won't be until much later, like Matthew 21, with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that his coming will look anything like that. But as I hope you'll see as we continue on into this series in the coming weeks and months, the groundwork that Matthew establishes here in these first 17 verses of his gospel is the foundation upon which everything else in his gospel account, is built. Tying together the promised hope of Jesus coming through his royal family line in the Old Testament with the fulfillment of those kingly messianic promises beginning here with his advent. 
in order to help us see and, and grasp what it is that Matthew wants us to begin with, says we need to start with, I want to focus our time in this passage today on those three beginnings that Matthew highlights there in verse 1 in particular. So we're going to look at Jesus, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of David, and then finally, Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the son of Abraham, David, and the son of God. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here in Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. Follow along with me as we embark now on this new teaching series today, Kingdom Come, and begin to take an on-the-ground look at God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in Jesus. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jesus the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Now, I suppose I shouldn't have given the impression when I began here that, that nobody cares about genealogy today, that that's not important to anyone. Uh, uh, I, I know for a lot of people, their family history is something that's really important for them, uh, as evidenced by the popularity of sites today like Ancestry.com, uh, 23andMe.com, and up until recently, my father-in-law's Facebook page. Uh, lots of tracing of, of family history, super important to people. It's great. I, I love to see what our historical roots are. But for a Jewish person in particular, family history had great importance, both in proving your, your Jewish identity, as well as, in cases like this, providing evidence of your royal lineage. So uh, you get some sense of the importance of this to a Jewish person in the first century if you watch shows like uh, Downton Abbey, if you read a lot of Jane Austen novels where, where someone's lineage, someone's family ties can mean the difference between prosperity or poverty, between in, being invited to the ball or, or not even making it past the front gates. And as it relates to Jewish identity in particular, no other family tie would have been more important than the tie to Abraham, the, the father of God's people, Israel. We, we learn about Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, which actually also tells us the, the genesis or the beginnings of the nation of Israel. As God calls a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq, and says this, quote, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, and so, so this marks the beginning of God's chosen people as God promises to build this entirely new nation, the people of Israel, through this one man, Abraham. And if you consider confrontations, like, like for instance, like the one that Jesus has in John chapter 8 with the religious rulers, you begin to see both the importance of the appeal to having Abraham as your father. This was the, the Pharisees' appeal to the purity of their Jewish heritage. They would say, we have Abraham as our father. We have Abraham as our father. As well as the way that impure or, or mixed heritage was seen as a way of making somebody less than. As the Pharisees say to Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan, somebody of a mixed, uh, despised race and possessed by a demon? Like they weren't pulling out, they were pulling out all the stops here and in, in, insulting Jesus, particularly by accusing him of having mixed or impure heritage. The, the point is that in stating Jesus' heritage as being a son of Abraham, Matthew is establishing for us the purity of Jesus' Jewish heritage and thus 
at being at least a plausible candidate to be this promised king of the Jews. His Jewish heritage is set and secure. But I don't know, as we look at something like this today, we read these kind of things, Jesus being the son of Abraham, well, it might be, I don't know, some interesting historical information, and I say might, because maybe for a lot of you it's like, it's not even interesting to me, actually. Um, all of this sounds about as relevant to us today as, as knowing Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice had a, a fortune of 4,000 pounds a year. Wow, that's great. Uh, what are we doing for lunch again? Um, it seems unimportant, but what that fails to appreciate is the fullness of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. For, for, for a while, the promise to make Abraham, a great nation, uh, had the utmost significance for a Jewish person. Listen, God's promise to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's line, through the seed of Abraham, was the utmost importance and is of the utmost importance to every non-Jewish person in the world, including you and I today. Okay, so you see that, which means all of a sudden, understanding Jesus as the son of Abraham isn't just some irrelevant fact about Jewish identity for people in the past, Jesus is now, as we read in some of the promised uh, prophecies of the coming king in places like Isaiah 49, he is a light for all nations. He is the one that the salvation of the Lord may reach to the ends of the earth by, which means that this, this promise this promise that, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. It's a promise that's about connection and about identity for Jewish people, but it's also a promise about inclusion. It's, it's, a, it's a promise about connection and inclusion, a, 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 a reality reflected even by Matthew's inclusion of women in Jesus' genealogy, something that in a first century Jewish cultural context would, would be rarely, if ever, done, and the, the four women that Matthew includes in Jesus' genealogy are not even of Jewish descent. So you see, it's, a, it's a, a statement of inclusion along with being one of Jewish identity. So I know this doesn't tell us everything, but it shows us at least Jesus' heritage as the son of Abraham has relevance to all of us. All the nations of the earth, this is relevant to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Okay, so that's Jesus, the son of Abraham. The next thing Matthew shows us here is that Jesus is also the son of David. So let's look now at this. Jesus, the son of David. So where Abraham marks the high point of identity for the people of God, David marks the high point for the monarchy. Uh, uh, for after something of a false start there with King Saul, David is and remains to this day the best, most celebrated of all of the kings of Israel. Which is interesting, not, not because God's people didn't thrive and enjoy unparalleled peace and prosperity under David's rule, but because David's marital failure with Bathsheba and then the resulting murder of her husband Uriah to cover, up, cover that up also remains to this day one of the things David is best known for. And which Matthew unflinchingly points out there in the second half of verse 6 of Jesus' genealogy here, speaking of Solomon's birth to David as by the wife of Uriah. So it's like they're like saying, like, yeah, David, but remember David. So that's why I say it's interesting. But, but it was these very promises 
particularly once the nation fell into ruin and was taken into this Babylon captivity that Matthew talks about here, one of the lowest points of all in Israel's national identity, these promises in particular led God's people to continually hold on to hope in the midst of that captivity, to, to, to believe that this son of David would come one day who would reestablish Israel and then bring about that same unparalleled peace and prosperity to God's people once again. But one of the things you come to understand about what Matthew is doing here in his genealogy, as opposed to, for instance, uh, the the somewhat differing genealogy that we have in Luke chapter 3, is that rather than giving us a straight biological listing of Jesus' relatives, that is just kind of giving us further evidence of Jesus' Jewish identity, Matthew is instead, actually, if, if you go back and look at these names, he's giving us a legal history a throne succession listing, actually, in order to prove that Jesus is actually the next in line to sit on David's throne. Very interestingly, actually, of the ten times son of David is applied to Jesus in Matthew's gospel, one in particular comes during his triumphal entry into into Jerusalem as the crowds waving palm branches and laying down cloaks in front of Jesus cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Once again, don't don't get caught up too much in in the Jewish historical past. This this doesn't have relevance solely for Jewish audience alone because when you look back at some of the prophecies that this promised about about this promised coming king, for instance, what we read about in Isaiah chapter 9, a, a passage often thought about around Christmas that tells us of a child born, a son given whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, who who will sit on David's throne and, and who will bring this kingdom of justice and righteousness forevermore. What it also says in that same prophecy is that this coming son will, quote, make glorious the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why The prophet Simeon, upon seeing the baby Jesus when he's brought to the temple, uh, could cry out, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. As Frederick Dale Bruner notes this, quote, While Jesus is the human son of David, the main purpose of the genealogy is to establish this, nevertheless, Matthew's Jesus continually hints that more than the son of David is here. Which means that this eternal rule and reign of peace and prosperity and justice that this son of David would bring was not just something that would happen for the historic people of Israel alone, but for all peoples, for all nations, for all times. It means that's something Jesus, as the Son of David, brings to us. How many of you today in this current cultural context with so much political division and warring and fighting are longing for someone who will come and set up a kingdom of, of peace, prosperity, of justice, true justice, Righteousness. Every ruler and great ruler, no matter how great they are, continually just prove we we need a different king to bring a different kind of kingdom because these ones just keep failing us. It means that Jesus as the son of David 
for, for Jew or Gentile alike. This has relevance to us now today as we await that, that coming kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. He came to bring all for, for all those who would bow the knee to him as king then, as well as everyone who bows, the knees to, bows their knees to Jesus today still as their king. This is the kingdom he's coming to bring. We've looked at Jesus' beginnings now as the son of Abraham and the son of David. There's so, so much more that we could say about each one of those family ties for Jesus. But this last beginning that Matthew mentions, and, and I believe the beginning to which those other two beginnings ultimately points, is Jesus' divine beginnings. So let's look lastly now at Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. The two great baskets of promise in the Hebrew Scriptures, again, notes Frederick Dale Bruner, are the promise to David of a son who would be king forever, and the promise to Abraham of a seed who would be a blessing for everyone, a promise meeting Israel's hope for an eternal David, and a promise meeting the Gentiles' yearning for a universal Savior. And yet when you look closely at both of those promises, as, as Bruner said earlier, you see that with Jesus, more than the son of Abraham, more than the son of David, is here. Seed of Abraham, through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The seed of David that would rule forevermore and bring justice and peace and prosperity that God, uh, for God's people. It, it always, it certainly seemed in the moment anyway, like those promises would and, and could be fulfilled by natural earthly sons. It kept seeming like that. You're going to be the one who steps in and does that. And yet, again and again, as, as son after son came and went, uh, failed, died, did, did not endure forever. What became increasingly clear was that the fulfillment of God's promise started to, to point further and further away from a natural-born son of man to the supernatural seed of the woman, promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Once again, a promise given in a moment of failure, of loss, of confrontation, uh, where, where people were failing, just as those promises were given to David in the midst of his failure, now here... This promise is given to God's people in the midst of their failure, where God promises that one day he would send a ruler, he would send a, a king who would come and do battle with the serpent and would reconcile all things back together that had been lost because of their failure, reconciling everything in heaven and on earth back to God. When a king was chosen to rule in the Old Testament, the way that person was marked or, or set apart for this act of service was to be anointed with oil. That, that's how they marked this person. You see this, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, when David, the youngest son of Jesse, is chosen from among his brothers as Israel's next king and is anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. The, the word used in the Hebrew Scriptures for this anointed one, you may have heard before, the term is Mashiach, or Messiah. Messiah, it means anointed one. But again, as I said, when anointed one after anointed one, when Messiah after Messiah kept coming and going, obeying and then failing, ruling but then dying, God's people increasingly came to understand that what they were ultimately waiting for was not a Messiah, but the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that David speaks of in Psalm 2 of God and his anointed one, of whom he says, 
I tell of the decree, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. That one, that, that anointed one is the one they, they were ultimately waiting for. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the language of the scriptures is no longer Hebrew but Greek. And so the Hebrew word for anointed one, Mashiach or Messiah, now becomes Christos, Christ. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, which means, look, when Matthew begins his, his gospel here with the words, the book of the genealogy, the book of the Genesis, or the beginnings of Jesus Christ, he's not giving us the family history of some first century Jewish guy, first name Jesus, second name Christ. No, he's speaking of Jesus' divine nature as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God's anointed king come to bring God's kingdom to earth. Bringing all that God's people Israel believed that he would bring in his coming as the son of Abraham and the son of David. And yet actually bringing so much more. Much, much more than they ever could have thought or imagined that he would bring as well. And, and, and actually, it was all that more that he brought that actually ultimately is what made Jesus so confusing. Actually even offensive to so many people when he came because although God came God's promised king did come exactly like he promised he would. And although he came with the right to rule as the son of Abraham and the next legal heir to the throne of David, he didn't come like most of the people thought he was going to come. Nor did he bring the kind of nationalistic kingdom of Israel that many people at that day believed that he was going to come and set up for them. Get rid of the Romans put Israel back on top again. He, he didn't do that. And so in the end, although yeah, God's people did crown Jesus as their king, well, the crown that they gave Jesus was a crown of thorns that they pressed into his scalp. The, 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 the declaration of his kingly rule in the end being a placard nailed above his head on the cross on which they crucified him. Now, this was the very purpose for which Jesus had come. To, to defeat this serpent, to break sin's curse, to, to, to carry out God's eternal plan, to begin uniting all things in heaven and on earth back to himself once again. But the point is, this was a very different king bringing a very different kingdom than anyone thought or expected either then or that many people still today believe that Jesus came to bring. And yet, this was the strange, wonderful, unexpected fulfillment of God's promise of a king that Matthew wants to establish for every one of his readers before he goes on to now tell us the story of Jesus' birth. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that right now. That's next week. Um, he, he, he says... You need to know this first. This, says Matthew, is the promised king of old. Jesus, the Christ, the, the son of David, the son of Abraham, whose birth story, now that you know all this, all of Jesus' beginnings, I can now properly recount for you. There's so much more that we could say about each one of these beginnings that Matthew lists you. Each one of them could actually be a message on, a, on its own. And, and there have been. The reality is there have been books 
and, and volumes and hard drives filled with reflections and studies and, and examinations of each one of them. But as I close this morning now and you're left to think about what this might mean for each of you today, because, I mean, this is a strange passage. There's not a really clear go and do likewise as you read a genealogy of names. And yet what I want to leave with you, what I want to leave you with is something that's actually incredibly important for each one of us to know about the way that Matthew begins his gospel. Something that you discover, actually very simply, by just browsing through these lists of names that Matthew gives us here in this genealogy. Just browsing through the list of names. Why don't you take a, a second right now, just starting from verse 2 there, just look through some of these names that Matthew lists. Maybe, maybe some of the names near the beginning are, are more familiar to you. Um, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. Yeah, no, that's, okay, I've heard of that name. And then by the time you get to the end of the list, if you're like most of us, we're like, I don't know, I'm not sure who those guys are. You can take comfort in the fact that most biblical scholars, actually, even they are, are pretty unclear about what's going on with a lot of those guys because some of it, so much of it took place during the exile. My point is this. It can feel intimidating when, when, when you look at a list of some of these famous names here. It, 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 these, these things from Jesus' earthly ancestry. You got guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, Ruth, Boaz, David and Solomon. It's just like, wow, like these very Jewish names, but also just kind of like a, a who's who of biblical celebrities. These are all part of Jesus' family line, and it can feel intimidating to us and yet the reality is listen if you were to go back and read the stories in the old testament of each one of these people that that matthew lists here what you would not find is the stories of of heroes and successes and celebrities what you'd find again and again in every case is the stories of sinners of failures the stories of liars and betrayers of adulterers and murderers, of screw-ups, of idolaters, of deeply flawed and fear-filled leaders, which is just to say you'd find the stories of people just like you and me, everyday stories of people, failures, trying to do their best and falling short. And so along with all the other stories here and all the other purposes that I mentioned this morning about why Matthew would give us this genealogy. I think another key purpose of Matthew's list of Jesus' beginnings that we can take hold of today and leave with is simply this. First of all, Matthew's list of Jesus' beginnings is an invitation to all of us into the story of Jesus. It's an invitation, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, where you come from, how far you may have wandered from God, Matthew's saying, this story is for you. This story is for me. It's for all of us. And secondly, Matthew's list of Jesus' beginnings is a reminder. It's a reminder that the eternal purposes of God for his kingdom they are not limited in any way by our weaknesses nor do our weaknesses disqualify any of us from still being used in order to help bring God's eternal purposes about I don't know about you but 
when I think in my own life, that's, that's very good news. <sighs> Amen. Amen. Thank God for this word.